When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www pantheonpodcast.com we've already raised enough to pay for 11 months of episodes of this show we're going to keep the fundraising drive going until we've got a full year covered please give if you can afford to today nate welcomes michael corcoran to discuss pioneers of texas music like blind willie johnson arizona drains and washington phillips Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Michael Corcoran, author of Ghost Notes, Pioneering Spirits of Texas Music, illustrations by Tim Kerr. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And so this is a beautiful book. You've got um, lots of black and white and color illustrations and paintings by Tim Kerr. How did this whole project come together? Well, me and Tim uh, worked together on a couple of murals uh, in downtown Austin. And uh, one of them was the uh, Unsung Heroes of Austin Music. And it was uh, a bunch of uh, people that, you know, like Arizona Drains, LMA, uh, Miller, Ernie May Miller, I'm sorry. Anyway, it's, it's a bunch of little known Austin people and he did the murals and I did the, I wrote the copy. I did the, I did the research. And we also did a history of Red River Street, which he, uh, he, he drew the whole uh, history on the side of a building. And so working with him, first of all, he's very easy to work with. And secondly, I wanted to do something different. I wanted this book to have a different look than my previous book. And so I just said, hey, Tim, do you want to do like, uh, they told me at the beginning I had 12, 12 color pages, and the rest is black and white. So, you know, could you do like 12 paintings? And he said, sure. 
he did them. And then uh, during the process, they told me, no, the whole book is color. And so I went back to Tim and I said, well, you know, you don't have to, we're, you're only contracted to 12, but if you want to do more, I can definitely use them. And he, he went and did another 10 to 15 more full page color portraits. And I think that uh, it's, it's really the reason we have his name on the front cover is that it's really as much his book as mine. I mean, I got the words, he did the, he did the images and that's kind of how we started. Yeah, it's a really powerful combination. Tim's illustrations bring these people back to life in a way that, um, not that it gets your prose, but but the pictures are worth a thousand words and really crystallize an image for each of these people, um, along with the stories, which are really well told. And in the in the preface of the book, you talk about Mac McCormick, the great, yeah. I don't yeah. call him, blue scholar of Texas, the great unpublished Robert Johnson biographer. What yeah. was Mac McCormick? to you and how'd you hook up with him i was working on i was doing research on blind willie johnson and um it was it was a subject that he was interested in I, I reached out to him a couple of times and never heard back uh but for this one he got back to me and said yeah you know if you're ever in houston come by and so i did one night and uh it really kind of started off really badly uh he almost shut the door in my face uh, because I had mentioned somebody uh, that I thought he was friends with that it turned out he wasn't friends with, and uh, which is not rare with Mac. He was very much like that. He was kind of, uh, a lot of people had problems with him and vice versa. So, uh, but during this talk, we went to a Mexican restaurant and, and after a while, after everything settled down, and there was two, a couple of things, main things I got from Mac McCormick was I realized that if Mac had already, uh, started researching a subject. As I mentioned in the book, it was like going to a garage sale at noon. Like you're not going to, it's already been picked over. And so I realized I need to find an area of research that he hasn't already done. And, uh, and that was gospel because in my uh, talkings with him, I realized he didn't really know much about gospel music. He was really a blues researcher and gospel was really one of those, those wide open uh, fields. You know, there's that there's that audit adage in baseball. You know, hit it where they ain't, and that was kind of my approach to history. Is if you know, I don't, I never wrote anything about Buddy Holly or Willie Nelson or people like that that have been done to death. I found people that nobody ever written about. Yeah, and some of these people are incredibly fascinating and had unique and powerful musical gifts that. I mean, there's just nothing like Washington Phillips or Arizona Drains or Blind Willie Johnson that you're going to come across yeah. on your Spotify list. Um, this is unique Americana. It's a window into the past. It's it's just incredible stuff. Uh, you, you, you devote a pretty good section of the book to this, what you call the holy trinity of Texas gospel pioneers. And Washington yeah. Phillips and Arizona are two of those that I've mentioned. And then the third one is Blind Willie Johnson that you mentioned earlier. And it's a fascinating yeah. trio because Willie Johnson, you know, you can put him in to the blues category. He played slide guitar. His songs have been played by Led Zeppelin, Bob Dylan, The Grateful Dead, The Staples Singers. But his songs are all religious. He didn't do blues numbers as we think of them. But he's still, he's a guy right. with the guitar, very much like Blind Lemon Jefferson. Then you've got Arizona Drains, who's kind of your prototypical she might even be the literal prototype for the pentecostal pianist gospel right. singer. 
mm-hmm. which has become the main line of American gospel and has become one of the main, it's become a huge part of the mainstream of American music. I mean, you, you Aretha Franklin, right? Straight direct line to this stuff, and and well, then you got Sister you know, Rosetta Tharp too, yeah. Oh yeah, Sister Rosetta Tharp basically invents rock and roll in the forties, and and um, you know with powerful guitar playing and and also the Pentecostal approach. But then the third figure that you focus in on is Washington Phillips, who's mm-hmm. it's it's so uncanny to hear his music. It's like going back into the into an unknown past. I mean, it's just not like anything else. We don't even really know what instrument Washington Phillips played. Although you do. Well, we sort of know what it, we, we sort of know what his instrument was. He, he kind of uh, made his own instrument out of two zithers. He kind of welded them together. And that's where he, that's what his instrument was. He, he was photographed with those. And after my yeah. research came out, a couple of the musicologists uh, decided that that's what it was. And, and, there's actually pretty uh, in detail descriptions online uh, from uh, Kelly Minor, I believe his name is. But to me, Washington Phillips is sort of like the prototypical singer-songwriter. You know, even though he wrote religious songs, uh, there was a lot of depth to it. He wasn't always positive about uh, religion. Uh, he didn't pr- just praise God. He, he wrote about other parts of it. He wrote about himself, too. And then he had this otherworldly instrument, which does, it sounds like a child's uh, music box, almost. And I think the, the thing with Washington Phillips is that uh, the music grabbed me first. I heard the music, and I went, wow, what is this? And that I, I found that in my research, the best, the best stories I've written are stories where it all started with a fascination with the music and me trying to find out where did he get this? Where did this come from? And he's a perfect one for that. He sure is. And let's go ahead and hear him. This is Denomination Blues, which is a song. This is Washington Phillips' version. And Rod Cooter did a cover of this in the 70s and kind of brought Washington Phillips uh, to a much higher profile. But this is the unique sound of Washington Phillips. Tonight you fight. Every man don't understand the Bible like. But that's all now. I tell you that's all. But you better have Jesus, I tell you that's all. Well, denominations has no right to fight. They ought to just treat each other right. And that's all. I tell you that's all. But you better have Jesus, I tell you that's all. And that was Washington Phillips doing Denomination Blues. Um, and Washington Phillips was born 1891. So he's roughly about the same age as Charlie Patton and Mississippi John Hurt. Oh, wait. He was, you... born 1880. He, was, he was born in 1880. 1880? You know, yeah. The, well, the original thing with Washington Phillips is I was working for the Austin American Statesman. And I, like I said, I loved his music. I, I bought a, a CD of his that Yazoo had put out and they, they said that he was born in 1891 and he, he died in the insane asylum and, and that sort of thing. And he was buried in Austin. And that was my connection to get the paper that I worked for to, to send me to Teague and write about Washington Phillips because he had an Austin connection. But as I was doing the research, I realized that it, they had the wrong Washington Phillips. The Washington Phillips who made the music 
was actually born in 1880. They were cousins. They were first cousins. And uh, so the, the narrative on the on the first uh, uh, Washington Phillips who died in the insane asylum was that it, it, it sort of uh, uh, identified his music as sort of his mind going crazy. It sort of fit in with with what happened in his life. But then I find this other guy who lived to be 74, and I met people who were his neighbors, people who knew him. I went to where he lived, the cabin. I found, you know, artifacts on the grounds. All this, uh, when I finally found the new guy, not not the wrong guy. Yeah, and that's one of the things I really appreciate about your work is doing the detective work and doing the tedious research and getting to the bottom of this stuff. And and you know, even though somebody like Washington Phillips seems like the ancient past in a lot of ways, he certainly sounds like the ancient past. Um, yeah. You know, not that long ago, you were able to go to Teague, Texas and meet people who actually knew the man and, and you know, connect it with our immediate reality. And it's just fascinating stuff. The, where I was going with the, the Charlie Patton thing, though, so 1880 is even older than Charlie Patton. So would you consider him as part of like the songster generation, like Mississippi John Hart sometimes described as a songster rather than a blues man, that this is the style that preceded the blues? Or is, do you think Washington Phillips is just kind of a one-off, unique he was a he was a unique guy. He was he was one of a kind. But you know when you when you hear uh, Rosetta Tharp covered Denomination Blues, she called it "That's All." And when you hear her do it, you realize he, he was the beginning of that tradition. Uh, the thing about Washington Phillips is there's no I've, you know as much research as I did, and I spent years looking into him. I've never found a single uh, Bill's performance. Never a Washington Phillips performing here. Uh, he only played in church. And at gatherings around Simsboro was the community that he lived in near Teague, Texas. He would play at barbecues. He would play at weddings. Never a never a gig uh, like, you know, Blind Willie Johnson played, uh, you know, places where they they build them and they charge for money. But Washington Phillips had none of that. He was strictly a kind of an old uh, an old guy in a small town that everybody knew as a weird weird guy, but nobody even knew he made records until I went there. Huh. And and so he cut 18 sides for Columbia in the late 1920s. How did that come about? Well, there was a guy named uh, Frank Walker. He was the uh, head of, he was like the VP at Columbia Records. And he was in charge of field recordings. And he would, uh, every December starting 1927, he would go to Dallas. He would find out who the, who the best musicians were in the area. He'd tell them where to show up. And they showed up and they would uh, audition in the morning, rehearse in the afternoon, and then record in the evening. Do it all in one day. And that's how uh, Frank Walker recorded Washington Phillips and also Blind Willie Johnson the first the first day. Uh, and the songs like, uh, uh, what was it? Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground, uh, Motherless Children, uh, Nobody's Fault But Mine. He recorded like six songs that are kind of classics now in the same day with Blind Willie Johnson. And he, uh, Frank Walker would came back the next year in 1928 and recorded uh, some more of both those guys. And then in 29 uh, was, I believe 29 was, uh, 1930 was when uh, he recorded Blind Willie uh, Johnson for the last time. Yeah, and, and Phillips sold, moved some units. I mean, not 
massive sales, but his best-selling record sold 8,700 copies. So that was enough for Columbia yeah. to be interested in printing up more and, yeah. and do more. Um, but like everybody else, the Depression comes as this big sort of year zero event in yeah. the recording of American music. And, and you know, there's this boom in the late 20s. And then for the most part, everything goes silent for the 1930s. And Washington Phillips was no exception. Do you happen to have any idea how Ry Cooter heard of Washington Phillips and learned his denomination blues? I don't. I never was able to get a hold of Ry, Ry Cooter uh, during my research, which is, which is fine. I mean, he was first from recording, but I'm sure it was probably, uh, I don't think he was in the Harry Smith anthology, but, you know, 78 collectors, pass the stuff around and, and so he he heard of them through that through collectors probably cool and well, let's move on to arizona drains who's a very different figure i mean washington phillips is sort of this absolutely unique cul-de-sac i mean cul-de-sac's the wrong term because his music is definitely transcendent and incredibly powerful but you don't hear yeah. the influence of washington phillips on anybody else it's, it's kind of this one-off but arizona That's drains true becomes this massively influential figure on the evolution of gospel, but also rhythm and blues and rock and roll. Yeah. Tell us about Arizona Drains. I mean, how, how did you discover her? When did she record? What's she known for? Well, I discovered that, you know, I call them my big three, the Holy Trinity, the same day, really, but their music at least. I got a, I got a CD in the mail called Amazing Gospel, it was one of these British uh, reissue, you know, knockoff. I'm sure they didn't get royalties or rights or anything. They just put the music out. And so I, so Arizona Drains was the first uh, artist on that record. And um, I found out early on that she was from Texas. My whole fascination with gospel music or, uh, really started when uh, Kirk Franklin, I don't know if you know him, he's like a gospel, a modern gospel guy from Fort Worth. He made a record with uh, God's Property in Dallas called Stomp. Uh, they sampled uh, George Clinton, and they had the first number one uh, gospel record since uh, Oh Happy Day in 1969. So it was kind of a big story in Texas. So I went up there and uh, interviewed God's Property, interviewed uh, Kirk Franklin, and I thought, well, I need more background. I don't really know anything about gospel music. I need to do a little research to see what you know, how different this is. And so I got two books. One is called How Sweet the Sound by Horace Boyer. The other one's called The Gospel Sound by Tony Harbutt, Anthony Harbutt. And uh, for those two rec for those two books, I came to discover that Arizona Drains was from Texas, as was Washington Phillips and Blind Willie Johnson. A lot of people didn't even know where they were from in the beginning. So, and they also said, uh, that Arizona Drains invented the gospel beat. And so I started thinking to myself, well, gospel beat, that's that's rock and roll. She started the whole thing. But what she did, basically, she was Pentecostal, and they were the first uh, religious denomination that played instruments in church. And she uh, they basically overcome by the Spirit is, is what they uh, were all about in speaking in tongues. And she was the first person to play secular styles, like the hot, you know, Barrel House, Ragtime, those kind of styles of music to religious songs. And, you know, nowadays that's, that's you know, it's, it's so common that gospel music and blues, they have the same backing a lot of times. It's really the same thing. It's just the lyrics are different. 
but she's really the first one to start that. And uh, the guy uh, Thomas Dorsey is known as the father of the blue, a uh, father of gospel. And I read an interview that he did with uh, Studs Terkel, where he talks about hearing Arizona Drains. He was a blues musician, and he heard Arizona Drains, and it gave him the idea to do uh, blues with gospel music. And so she really influenced Thomas Dorsey, who's the father of gospel. And I thought, well, you know, this woman is uh, so important and nobody's ever heard of her. So I did my first story. And what happens a lot of times is I'll do a story at the beginning and then I'll get someone who will, will contact me. And there was this uh, woman from the uh, uh, Texas School for the Blind named Christy Sprinkle. And she was sort of a historian and uh, on, on the people that went to the school there. And there, was, there was a black blind school and there was a white blind school. And she kind of covered both of them. And she said uh, she found some transcripts of when Arizona Drains attended the blind school in Austin. And so I go to the State History Center in Austin. And sure enough, they've got about 10 years of the blind school. And there's Arizona Drains' name on it. And it shows also that she learned how to play classical music when she was seven or eight years old. She was singing arias at age nine. She was classically trained. And so the story on Arizona Dreams before I started doing research was that she was a primitive. They thought, you know, a 21-year-old primitive, you know, pounding away on a on an attitude upright. But in actuality, she was 37 years old, and she had been classically trained. And so I went back and I found that she had, you know, played for movie theaters. She was very she was well versed in secular styles of music before she started making uh, religious music. She wasn't even uh, Pentecostal until 1922, which would be uh, about 33 years old when she uh, converted to the Church of God in Christ. Uh, so when I found the second part that that she had gone to school there and found uh, what she had studied, I was contacted by Josh Rosenthal from uh, Tompkins Square Records. And he said, do you, do you have enough on Arizona Drains to do like 7,000 words? Because I want to do a book CD on her. And I was thinking like 7,000 words, wow, that's going to be rough. But, you know, I said, okay. And so I did that, I did that book CD uh, that was uh, nominated for a Grammy for Best Historical Recording, I think in, in 2013 or 2014. Yeah, and let's go ahead and hear a little Arizona Drains. This is Arizona Drains singing, He Is My Story. Arizona Drain singing He Is My Story. And so she records for OK Records, O-K-E-H. Um, yeah. And she discovered and, and brought uh, into the studio. Well, there was a feature in uh, Fort Worth named uh, Samuel Crouch. He's like, he's like the uh, grandfather of Andre Crouch in the Crouch family. But he was a preacher in Fort Worth and he had a radio show and she would sing on it sometimes. And they... Uh, Okay, this was in 1926, and nobody had ever recorded Pentecostal 
uh, music before. Uh, but there was a, a OK scout named Richard Jones. He thought, well, let's try, let's record some of this and see if this sells. He put the word out. Crowd said, "This I got the person for you," and they sent Arizona Drains to Chicago on a train. And you know, the the letter said, "We're, we're not promising people we're going to put records out. We're just going to see how it goes." And these are just test recordings. And so uh, Richard M. Jones was at the time recording uh, Louis Armstrong and his Hot Six, I believe. I'm not sure what the number was, but Hot Five maybe. Very uh, influential uh, jazz recordings in 1926. In the same studio, Arizona, so, so Louis Armstrong is recording with Kid Ory and them one day. The very next day, Arizona Drains comes in and kind of creates this whole new uh, template for gospel music. And I was like thinking, like, if they could ever find out what room that was recorded in, that's a lot of history was made right there. But she, yeah. uh, while, while she was up there in Chicago, she also performed at the uh, uh, the Kojic uh, Church uh, Temple. I can't remember the name right now, but uh, Rosetta Tharp was, in, was a parishioner there. She was 11 years old. She had already started playing guitar, but they uh, a woman described, uh, I'm not sure if I talked to her if I got it from someone else. I actually found some people who, who saw Arizona Drains play in church in Oklahoma City and elsewhere. They talked about how she would hit the piano with her elbows and jump off and the whole place would go nuts. And it was, it was Robert's temple in Chicago. So I, I kind of think Sister Rosetta Thar saw Arizona drains and thought, well, maybe if I add more energy to it, you know, then I'll have something. She definitely yeah. influenced her and, and influenced a lot of, uh, you know, uh, probably uh, Leon Russell, the way he plays the kind of gospel piano that all comes from Arizona drains yeah absolutely and, and Russell you know he, he'll, he would talk up Kojic the Church of God in Christ the, the, the fundamental uh, Pentecostal church and and it's fascinating yeah. you know I, I'm new to gospel relatively new to gospel but been researching the last couple of years for the show and one of the fascinating things is the way that people like Thomas A. Dorsey and Mahalia Jackson were Baptists and Methodists they were mainline african-american protestants and they were having to adapt right. their music compete with the pentecostals because the pentecostals are just packing them in and mostly to hear the music right. and so the, the other denominations had to adapt and thomas dorsey's kind of genius was to take this rhythmic aggression of arizona drains and combine it with the blues he'd been playing with ma rainey and create right. a what was gospel called then you know the gospel blues so yeah this is big doings and and it's fascinating to find these characters like Arizona Drains that are absolutely documented, massive influences on people who, you know, founded these these genres. And yet they're totally yeah. unknown. It, it's, it's, uh, well, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with Mac McCormick. And what he told me was uh, that what we I used the example of uh, we were talking about B.B. King. He goes, don't write about B.B. King. He's a he's an imitator. I'm, I never heard B.B. King called an imitator before. He goes, no, he got it all from T-Bone Walker. You got to walk. You got to write about T-Bone Walker. You know, you need to trace back to the people who started it. And that was real important when he said that. And so, well, there was on the drains. I mean, you can't go any further back than that. I mean, she started a lot of stuff. Washington Phillips, I think, started a lot of stuff. The introspective songwriting. You know, Blind Willie Johnson. The whole. Uh, playing slide guitar. Everybody, you know, from Dwayne Allman to 
Eric Clapton and them, they all, he started what they, what they finished. And, and to this day, there's still slide guitar players that can't top playing Willie Johnson, what he was doing in 27, 28 on one take. And, and tell us about Blind Willie Johnson. He, he, he records in the same period, 1927 to 1930, does 30 tracks. Uh, he's definitely the most well-known of the three. Like I said, Led Zeppelin, Eric Clapton, yeah. Bob Dylan, all, all those kind of classic uh, baby boomer blues rockers have, have dipped into his songbook here and there. How did he get discovered? Who did he record for? And, and how, what was his sort of commercial fortunes? Well, he got discovered at the same session as, as Washington Phillips in, in 1927. Uh, it was just a, kind of a cattle call. I don't know how they knew about him, but I'm sure they, they did because he he was kind of like Glenn, uh, Lemon Jefferson. In fact, there's some people say they, they played against each other on, the, on opposite street corners, you know, in, in Hearn, Texas, which it's not really that hard to believe. It could have happened. They both, they were both in the same circuit, even though, one was religious, the other one wasn't. But uh, he, I don't know, Blind Willie Johnson was just, he was discovered in the Harry Smith anthology. Um, and uh, Samuel Charters, Charters, I think his name was, uh, went in uh, right after Blind Willie uh, passed away in 1945. He went to Beaumont and interviewed his widow, Angeline, and based a lot of his information on, on what Angeline told him which uh, turns out to be mostly false. Um, I don't know if she was just making it up to make herself sound better, but you know, through the research, pretty much nothing she she said uh, pans out. You know, including the year he died. Um, what what else? I mean, there was a few other things. She she claimed to be the one who sang. There uh, was a female voice on his records, and you know, getting back to where uh, when you write one article. People come out of the woodwork and they'll tell you something else. When I did the Washington Phillips story, um, this guy from Dallas named Dan Williams contacts me. He says, well, that was great, but you need to write about Blind Willie Johnson. And he said, I went down in the 70s and uh, looking for Blind Willie. He had passed away, of course, but I met uh, people told me, well, I we know his wife, the one who sang on his records. And it wasn't Angeline Johnson. It was Willie D. Harris uh, in Marlin. And so... Uh, that was fascinating too. That this woman that sang on the backup and never got any credit. Uh, his his uh, his uh, next subsequent wife took the credit for it, but he heard her sing, and people have have since said that wasn't Angeline Johnson. That was a different voice, and so that got me going on on Blind Willie Johnson. I just figured that um, nobody really uh, even you know just getting his death certificate corrected a bunch of misinformation. You know, as far as when he was born, that sort of thing, because the informant uh, on his on his death certificate, the informant was his ex-wife Angeline, and so a lot of times they'll just it looked like she was describing where she was from instead of where he was from. She might have got confused, but a lot of stuff was wrong in that. And so I I just thought, well, first of all, he's an incredible musician. I think that one man, one mic, one guitar, nobody's done more than Blind Willie Johnson in that format ever and so uh but also there's all this uh, misinformation the stuff about uh, him going him going blind because his, his stepmother threw lie in his face all this stuff didn't pan out 
Well, that's that's why they say print the legend uh, when the legend's mm-hmm. true. But I appreciate actually your your uh, scrupulousness and getting to the facts of this stuff. We got to do history right at some point, and you've really done a good job. But let's hear a break. Take a break. Hear from our sponsors. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about some of the other topics that you cover in the book, including uh, rhythm and blues and folk. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And so the next sections of the book cover a wide variety of topics, but you managed to kind of weave the stories together in a way that gave me a satisfying feel. Like it was, it was sort of like reading a family history or something. I mean, the, the, the threads in it, and there's a lot of connections. And, and you talk about the Lomax and Gantt families, and the Lomaxes are uh-huh. pretty famous. John Lomax, right. who... You know, wrote cowboy songs and other frontier ballads, discovered Home on the Range, etc. And then with his son, Alan, later went out and, you know, did things like record a Young Muddy Waters in the Mississippi uh, Delta Plantation where he grew up for the Smithsonian. And so this incredibly important family for uh, American folk music. But you connect them yeah. to this Austin family, the Gants, who are totally obscure and yet they were recorded by the Lomaxes and were kind of a treasure trove of folk music. What can you tell us about the Lomaxes and the Gants and how they came together and why we don't know more than we do about the Gants? Um, well, uh, the Gants, the, the way I found out about them is because uh, Mike, Mike Seeger, uh, you know, Peggy, uh, uh, Peggy Seeger's brother, and I guess it's related to half brother to uh, Pete Seeger. Um, yep. He had a group called the New Lost City Ramblers, and they covered a song called uh, "When First Unto This Country a Stranger I Came." And next to the in, in the liner notes, can I get this another CD? I get in the mail, and I'm checking the liner notes, and it says it was written by uh, Foy and Maggie Gant, Austin, Texas, 1934. And so that get, that gets me going right there. And so I wanted to find out everything I can about the Gants. And so I 
it, it was kind of stymied. I went to the Lomax, the, the Briscoe Center for American History has all the Lomax stuff. And I found a little bit about the Gant family there. But until I put it out there online, I wanted to know more about this Gant family. And then I hear, this is about a year later, I hear from uh, a, a granddaughter who has all this stuff, has all these pictures, has all this history of the group. I mean, that's how I found out about it, about them. You know, Lomax is it's like you're, if you're in Austin and you collect folk, folk songs and you've got a family that lives two miles away that knows 200 of them, eventually you're going to find them. And so uh, they nothing really happened except for that one, that one song. But for me, their story really got to me because here's a family that was really poor. This is during the Depression. And they were so in love with music. All they did, I start off with this anecdote that uh, John Lomax wrote about in one of his books. And uh, it talks about going at 10 o'clock in the morning, going to the Gant family house. This is on a school day, knocking on the door, and the mother comes out with her bedclothes on and says, hey, the kids are still sleeping. You know, we were up all night singing. And that just got to <laughs> me like, I, I, you know, a lot of my stories, they, I, I kind of see a movie in them. You know, I see like, oh, this could be a really cool movie. And then I sort of write it that way. Of course, that never happens. But to me, they were a very cinematic story. This this whole depression family finding joy in music. That's the, the very you know the very basis of what I'm all about. You know. Yeah, yeah, and 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 bringing this huge repertoire of material to the table. And then the Lomaxes, I guess, didn't uh, get to record them as long as maybe they would have liked because of some tragedies in the Gant family and also because the Lomaxes took off and started traveling the country and recording. Yeah. And then one of the Gant, there's this poignant story you tell in the book about the murder of uh, one of their sons. And, yeah. um, you know, and I live really close to Deep Eddy Pool, which is where they lived. And, um, you know, it, that, that really hit me hard at home. I mean, this sweet Mormon family of, of folk singers and the, the kid trying to go out and make a little money and then yeah. goes out and meets the Texan uh, and, and gets shot to death. Um, but, but very classic. And then, you know, in the book, you also talk about some of the other connections that the Lomaxes had made. And two of them were songwriters, one Henry Lieberman, who's uh, best known for Home on the Range. And then right. a student of Lieberman's, Leon Payne, becomes this sort of legendary country songwriter. He wrote Lost Highway for Hank Williams. And probably a lot of other songs that he didn't put his name on that he sold for pocket change uh, and right. lost the credit. Tell us a little bit about Lieberman and Payne, how they interacted with the Lomaxes and kind of some of those connections in Texas music. Well, Henry, Henry Lever, Leverman is pronounced. Uh, he was a teacher at the blind school and he also uh, performed uh, in church as a great organ player, you know, genius musician. And, uh, when Lomax needed someone to transcribe uh, the recordings he made, he went to Henry Leverman, uh, who didn't really want to do it at first. He was a classical guy, but his wife, Virginia Leverman, said, no, this could be, this could be something. You know, songs like Home on the Range, uh, Streets of Laredo. Uh, a lot of these songs, he recorded them for the very first time and preserved them. And so it turned out to be a really good thing that Henry Leverman did that, even though he, he probably complained the entire way. But... When Home on the Range came, Home on the Range came out. That was uh, FDR's favorite song, and it became a, you know, a national, 
uh, song, and it wouldn't have happened if not for Henry Leverman. But he's he's also someone that I I became aware of uh, through Christy Sprinkle, uh, the blind historian in, in Austin. She told me about him, and uh, there's a uh, in Austin. Uh, uh, what is his name? Uh, there's a council council member named Lever, Lowell Leverman. So Lowell Leverman was a very powerful guy in Austin, and Henry Leverman was his grandfather. And so that was of interest to the paper that I worked for, the Statesman, uh, just yeah. roots on the Leverman family. And so I got into all that, but um, they, had, uh, Lowell Leverman had, a, had an assistant named Lois Patty, C-A-T-T-I-E, and she had the mother load of information. I mean, a lot of these, a lot of this research, a lot of it's luck. A lot of it also is finding the right people. You have to let people know that you're looking for information and then they'll give it to you. But if you don't do that, nobody's going to give you anything. So once it, once it became known that I wanted to find out about this stuff and then uh, Christy Sprinkle, uh, she told me about Leon Payne and then the, 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 the Whistler, um, uh, Lowry, Fred Lowry and other people that, that went to the blind school and, you know, Leon Payne, of course, was the, the most successful. Uh, he just wrote, you know, some of the uh, I Love You Because, which I think is his first song that uh, Elvis Presley ever recorded. Uh, yep. They'll Never Take Her Love From Me, for Hank Williams, You Are The One, Carl Smith. You know, he wrote a lot of really big songs. Lost Highway was probably the most famous now, though it was never a hit. So he was just one of those great guys that, you know, from Texas, that uh, I was really fortunate to be able to do some research on him. They do have a, a museum in, um, what is that town? Alvis, I think, Alvis, Texas, which is right by uh, Casey Musgraves. She's from the same area as, of like Mineola as uh, Leon Payne and, and some of the other people. So I went up there and that's one of the other thing I'd like to do. I'd like to go to these little, small town museums and see if there's anything at all that I could find of, of interest. And you do find things here and there. I mean, that's one thing about doing research like this. You, it's never, never over. You know, you could turn in, I did that. I did a 77 page book on Washington Phillips uh, for Dust to Digital, uh, a book CD. And I'm still researching Washington Phillips. You know, if anything comes up, I still will follow up on it because I feel like those people, those three gospel people, those are my, that's my responsibility to get as much information as possible. And I think that nobody else has come up with anything that I didn't have. You know, everything, Washington Phillips, you know, after the research I did, you would think maybe someone else would come up with, find some other bit of information. No, they didn't. I, I looked over under every rock, you know, and that's the yeah. thing I want to do. I want to make sure that I want to make sure I get it the first time, you know. It's not the first time in the second or third or fourth or fifth. You just have to keep, you're compelled to find out every bit of information you can. Well, on behalf of Texas Music Obsessives Everywhere, I want to thank you for that. And let's hear our next song. This is Leon Payne singing Lost Highway. Another guy on the lost highway 
Mr. Turner. That was Lost Highway, best known in its version by Hank Williams, but that's the version by the songwriter Leon Payne. And now if we can switch gears again, you've got a great story about some post-war rhythm and blues guys that's a whole different angle on these guys than anything I'd come across before. I knew that Charles Brown was gay, but I didn't realize Amos Milburn was gay, and I certainly didn't realize that they were as close as they were. Tell us about Amos Milburn, who's best known for one scotch, one bourbon, and one beer, and Charles Brown, who's legendary for Merry Christmas Baby and Drifting Blues, among many others. But Charles Brown, for years before Thriller, had the best-selling record by an African-American in history with Merry Christmas Baby. Tell us huh. some of the stories you talk about these guys. This is a really unusual couple. Well, it all started with Amos Milburn. I heard the song called uh, Down the Road a Piece, which he recorded in 1946. And it's, it's hardcore boogie-woogie like you've never heard it before. I just thought, this is the most incredible piano I've ever heard. And so I wanted to find out more about Amos Milburn. And then you, you come to find out that Fats Domino basically, uh, you know, copied... Amos Milburn. He first time he ever heard triplets was on an Amos Milburn song, and he he admitted that he tried to sing like Amos Milburn, and he even he even hum, hunched over his piano with a big grin like Amos Milburn. And I think, how did you never hear, hear of Amos Milburn when basically Fats Domino uh, got everything? Not everything, but he got a lot from Amos Milburn. And so the the other one is that with Charles Brown. Uh, Ray Charles has, has pointed out to him as a big influence. He had a song called Drifting Blues, and when Ray Charles was starting out, that was the song that, that he got all the tips from, and he started singing more like Charles Brown. So I'm starting off as as far as their musical influence. These two guys are hugely influential, and nobody's ever heard of them. And while I'm doing the research, I I read uh, this one interview. I you know I knew Charles Brown was gay too. His his wife. Uh, uh, Mabel Scott had done an interview with R.J. Smith from his book, uh, The Great Black Way. And she talked about how he was gay and he would keep a separate room for the boys and how it drove her crazy and all this other stuff. But um, I was reading an interview with Texas Johnny Brown, who was Amos Milburn's guitar player for many years. And he says, yeah, Amos was gay, but he was, he was easy, to ha- uh, easy to deal with or something like that. And so, wow, he's gay too. And then I... Uh, start reading more and more and I uh, Charles Brown's talking about well me and Amos we had this we were sharing a hotel room we were roommates I loved the way he cooked they sounded like a couple you know and so when yeah. I uh, finally when I finally started doing interviews I interviewed uh, Charles Brown's uh, manager and I was thinking like okay don't bring up the gay thing until the very end because I've got to get all this information about Charles Brown and I don't want this guy to be turned off by me thinking I'm going to write an expose about this guy who's been dead for 20 years or whatever. And so yeah. uh, right off the bat, he says, you know, they were a couple, don't you? <laughs> and so, <laughs> but then he tells me, he says, but, but you can't get that from me. I'm just telling you that, but you've got to find that from other sources. And I found plenty of sources. I found his band leader, uh, who would, uh, a uh, guitar player who would go on the road with him for years and years. And he talked about, yeah, everybody knew they were a couple. The public didn't know, but everybody in music knew they were a couple. And so that gives me a, a kind of a interesting angle to this because they were the two biggest guys in R&B the late 40s till about 1954. Uh, they each had about, I don't know, 10, 12 number one songs. 
Then in 54, it ends. No more hits. Completely over with 54. And so I'm starting to well, it's because people got around, they were a gay couple and there was prejudice against that or, you know, what reason was that for? I mean, that's probably stretching it a bit. I don't think people really cared that much. Uh, or, or, you know, back then it was sort of like if you were, uh, it, was, it was against the law to be gay. You could go to prison for being a male, yeah. uh, having sex with another man. And so they kind of looked the other way, kept it quiet, whatever. But when I started uh, Ghost Notes, it was actually uh, it was actually two books. The first book was uh, is going to be called uh, Going to See the King, and it was going to be Arizona Drains, Blind uh, Willie Johnson, Washington Phillips. That was going to be the whole book, and I had already got a publisher interested, and I could only stretch about twenty thousand words on those three people, and that's not enough for a book. Then I started doing the research on Amos Milburn and Charles Brown, and I thought, well, this could be a book. I'll call it Ivory Ghosts, and I'll talk not just about these two uh, artists, but I'll talk about you know the book, the birth of Boogie Woogie, and uh, uh, Texas piano blues. It'll be that whole thing. It won't just be these two guys. Again, I can only stretch it out to about fifteen thousand words, and so I just I had to figure out how could I make a book with these two completely different topics? And one of the things about Amos Milburn's playing on the pianos, he has, you know, what they call ghost notes. It's where he's got these little, little tinkers on the piano, little, little, barely even, you could barely even hear it. Plus he's, he's also sort of humming over what he's doing. And I thought, well, ghost notes will be a good way, a good umbrella for all this stuff because basically ghost notes are, are sounds that you could barely hear, but they really propel the beat. And so my idea being that uh, these obscure musicians, you don't know who they are, but they're really responsible for a lot of music that came after them. So anyway, that's how the book came together with those two. Uh, I wish I, you know, could do one on uh, a whole book on one artist, but I've never really done that yet. I, I, I tend to do uh, a group of profiles. And, and and it works. There's a lot of information in this book and, and with the illustrations and everything, I, I think it puts together a really nice package. But let's go ahead and hear our last song. This is the Five Blind Boys of Mississippi with lead singer Archie Brownlee doing Our Father, which is a huge hit for Don Roby's Peacock record. So we'll talk about Don Roby when we come back. And that was Our Father by the Five Blind Boys of Mississippi. Sometimes they're called the original Blind Boys, uh, lead singer Archie Brownlee. That was a big hit on Peacock Records, one of the first gospel records to include a drum kit banging away back there and, and really revolutionized the game. But before we start talking about Don Roby, who's a figure who's come up on Let It Roll many times, he's kind of the, he's, he's hands down the most important black entrepreneur in the music business in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Well, 60s, by that time, Barry Gordy's kind of passed him by, but he's, he was a big player yeah. in Houston, also had a big uh, handprint in Memphis, and was not a fun guy uh, to get on the wrong side of. 
or to try to collect right. royalties from. But, uh, you know, responsible for a whole deluge of great gospel records uh, and also R&B. You know, he put out B.B. King and Bob. Oh, he didn't put out B.B. King, but he put out Bobby Blue Bland and uh, Johnny Ace and a bunch of those uh, Memphis Bill Street boys. But before we get into yeah. that, I want to go back and mention the Boogie Ro- boogie Woogie Roots thing. And this is something I just came across in the last year or so. But there's been quite a bit of scholarly work that's traced Boogie Woogie Piano. And boogie Woogie is pretty much the fundamental uh, riff of rock and roll. It was a huge pop fad from the late 30s, from the time of John Hammond's Spirituals to Swing uh, conference, uh, uh, concert all the way through the end of the 40s. There's a big boogie-woogie boom, lots of black boogie-woogie pianists. There's country boogie with uh, um, you know people like Moon Mullican playing, yeah. playing uh, a country you know, boogie in a direct line at least directly to Jerry Lee Lewis. But this this idea, tell us about the Thomas family and and how what they did to contribute to Boogie Woogie. And why is it that we don't know anything about Herschel Thomas or George W. Thomas or anybody in that family since they crystallized well, the importance of American style? Well we, we know about Sippy Wallace who was who was their uh, sister, but the uh, the Thomas brothers uh, didn't really record much if anything i think maybe one or two things but um george thomas who's the oldest brother was is credited with the first uh sheet music for boogie woogie the left hand the propulsive left hand uh, you know the bass figures on the left hand that was sort of he was the first one to put that in sheet music and uh he and Herschel, his younger brother much younger brother uh they wrote a song called the fives uh which uh, came out in 1922 which all the all the great boogie woogie piano players of the era of the uh, the Mead, Lux Lewis, uh, uh, Pete Tom, Pete Johnson, uh, Jimmy Yancey, um, Ammons. Oh, I can't remember what Ammons' first name is, but they all credited that song in the in the twenties. That was the song that you did. You started off with you, the variations of that song is what became boogie woogie. So really, they're they're at the foundation of it, but. The, the the style of music boogie woogie goes back to the 1870s in and east texas uh lumber uh you know lumber companies would you know the there's no more slaves but in a way they they had jobs they were no longer slaves but they still had to they still kept them on the on the work field even though they could leave they kept them there by having these barrel houses at the at, on the lumber camps they'd have you know, barrel houses. So after the guys played, they would stay on the camp and drink and, and play music and dance and whatever. They bring women in from out of town, from the town, I mean. So that's pretty much where it started. It, it was sort of like a, a dance music with one instrument. And uh, the uh, the black guys that played uh, piano back then, they were really more into the percussive uh, part of the piano. They wanted to get people to dance. And that's what people have asked me before, like, what's the difference in, why is Texas music different than music from elsewhere? And I think partly it's because of the dance. Dancing is, it's all about dancing in Texas. And a lot of that has to do with the, the Czech and German settlers from 1850s and 60s. They built these dance halls. They were really community centers, but they also had, a, had dances on weekends. And they were these big, big buildings. And you get a lot of people in there talking and a lot of people and that's where amplification came about. Every every popular form of music, uh, jazz with Charlie Christian, 
uh, blues with T-Bone Walker, uh, Cajun music with the uh, uh, Hackberry Ramblers. They were actually from Louisiana, but they were playing in Texas, and they started bringing amplification. It was all in Texas because you had these big rooms, and people wanted to dance, and they couldn't dance if they couldn't hear the music. And so I think that's kind of where it all started with, with Texas music. It's sort of like you've got these bunch of people talking. You know, that's the thing about Texas. They like to dance. They like to talk. And so you've got all that's these right. people from the oil fields, oil fields, whatever. They're all, you know, being loud. And you got the bands have to be louder. And that's really where a lot of things started in music. Absolutely. And now we've got just a little bit of time to talk Don Roby. Tell us about Don Roby, what he did with Duke and Peacock Records. And I'll mention some of the R&B. Like I mentioned, he had Junior Parker, Bobby Bland, Johnny Ace, Roscoe Gordon, uh, Memphis Slim. Really tapped that Memphis R&B well, pretty well. But he yeah. also is probably the most important record company for putting out these singing groups that become the dominant form of gospel in what they call gospel's golden age, 1945 to 1965 or so. Tell us about uh, these different, like he had two different groups of blind boys, one from Mississippi, one from Alabama. He had the sensational Nightingales with the great Julius Cheeks. He had Dixie Hummingbirds. Tell us about this whole group singing phenomenon and, and how Don Roby carved out a commercial niche for these acts. Well, Roby, of course, as you alluded to earlier, he's best known for being a gangster. But he also, his innovation musically was uh, adding drums, adding a drum beat to gospel music. And that he, uh, through legend, he had a white, he had a blinking white light in the studio that was timed to the, the beat of a human heart. And the drummers had to follow that. And so before John Roby, it was very, very rare to have any, any drums at all on gospel music. After John Roby, everybody had drums. So that's one thing he started. He was, uh, there were uh, Peacock Records was really more about uh, you know staying staying black, not trying to assimilate. You know he was into the house wrecking stuff. He wanted the he wanted the gospel acts that would just slay people. You know uh, I don't know if you mentioned Archie Brownlee uh, from the Blind Boys of Mississippi. He's like the ultimate screecher, and that stuff thrived at um, at Peacock. And then you know later on. Groby is probably better known for his R&B, uh, you know, including the, the ones you mentioned. Also, he had the original version of Hound Dog uh, by uh, right. Big Mama Big Thornton. Up. And he also had Treat Her Right by Roy Head in the traits. Uh, he had a bunch of hits that were not, but I had no idea that he was such a, uh, a gospel, ma major gospel figure until I started, you know, doing research. And... Uh, you look at all the everybody every gospel great pretty much went through peacock you know the mighty clouds of joy they revolutionized uh gospel in the 1960s you know they started bringing in the full band and doing the choreography they, they called them the temptations of gospel and what it really encouraged uh the act to be over the top you know and a lot of studios might have, might have tried to temper them down he didn't care because it was he was not making music for for white crossover. He was making music for black people, even though it did eventually cross over and a lot of, a lot of white people really loved the Duke Peacock stuff. But he's just a really fascinating guy for what he was able to accomplish. And he also had Evelyn Johnson was his, you know, uh, right-hand person. And she's, a, she's responsible for a lot of it too. She did all the real work 
uh, Roby was, you know, he was a gambler. He was, he would be coming home from the, from the, from gambling when she was going to work every day. So they were a really <laughs> good team putting it together. They also had Evelyn Johnson also ran the Buffalo booking agency, which booked BB King and a bunch of other groups. So even though BB King didn't record with Duke Peacock, Roby still got some of his money. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that was the whole thing is that they, they had it all in-house and they were a team that, that apart, they couldn't have done it together. Apart, they couldn't have done it, but together they did do it, you know? So that's a great thing about the Duke Peacock, uh, legacy, I think is just, uh, I don't know. They just, they had nothing really. They were in Houston, which they'll be really cared about. And they made Houston, of course, Chicago is always the number one city for gospel, but Houston was number two for, for two decades because of Don Roby. And that's no small accomplishment. And my guest has been Michael Corcoran. The book is Ghost Notes, Pioneering Spirits of Texas Music. And there's a ton more great stories in there, t- stories about Jimmy Bowen, uh, the notorious hatchet man of Nashville uh, record business. You know, some great stories about uh, the Anderson High School Band and some of the great jazz musicians who came out of there. So just a ton of great uh, Texas music. And Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes Gary Graff to talk Alice Cooper. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.